Chapter 1 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Evan F. Discoveries Amongst the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Laird. Chapter 1 The Trustees of the British Museum Resume Excavations at Nineveh. Departure from Constantinople. Description of our party. Roads from Trebizond to Ezerum. Description of the country. Armenian churches. Ezerum. Rashid Pasha. The Dujuk tribes. Shahan Bey. Turkish reform. Journey through Armenia. An Armenian bishop. The lakes of Shailu and Nazik. After a few months' residence in England during the year 1848, to recruit a constitution worn by long exposure to the extremes of an eastern climate, I received orders to proceed to my post at Her Majesty's Embassy in Turkey. The trustees of the British Museum did not, at that time, contemplate further excavations on the site of ancient Nineveh. Ill health and limited time had prevented me from placing before the public, previous to my return from the east, the results of my first researches with the illustrations of the mountains and copies of the inscriptions recovered from the ruins of Assyria. They were not published until some time after my departure, and did not consequently receive that careful superintendence and revision necessary to works of this nature. And let me here, at the very outset, gratefully acknowledge that generous spirit of English criticism which overlooks the incapacity and shortcomings of the laborer when his object is worthy of praise and that object is sought with sincerity and singleness of purpose. The gratitude, which I deeply felt for encouragement rarely equaled, could be best shown by cheerfully consenting, without hesitation, to the requests made to me by the trustees of the British Museum, urged by public opinion, to undertake the superintendence of a second expedition into Assyria. Being asked to furnish a plan of operations, I stated what appeared to me to be the course best calculated to produce interesting and important results, and to enable us to obtain the most accurate information on the ancient history, language, and arts, not only of Assyria, but of its sister kingdom, Babylonia. Perhaps my plan was too vast and general to admit of performance or warrant adoption. I was merely directed to return to the site of Nineveh, and to continue the researches commenced amongst its ruins. Arrangements were hastily, and of course inadequately, made in England. The assistance of a competent artist was most desirable, to portray with fidelity those monuments which injury and decay had rendered unfit for removal. Mr. F. Cooper was selected by the trustees of the British Museum to accompany the expedition in this capacity. Mr. Hormuz Rassam, already well known to many of my readers for the share he had taken in my first discoveries, quitted England with him. They both joined me at Constantinople. Dr. Sandwith, an English physician on a visit to the east, was induced to form one of our party. One Abd el-Messiah, a Catholic Syrian of Mardin, an active and trustworthy servant during my former residence in Assyria, was fortunately at this time in the capital, and again entered my service. My other attendants were Mohammed Aga, a Kawas, and an Armenian named Circus. The faithful Bayraktar, who had so well served me during my previous journey, had accompanied the English Commission for the settlement of the boundaries between Turkey and Persia, with the understanding, however, that he was to meet me at Mosul, in case I should return. Kual Yusuf, 
the head of the preachers of the Yazidis, with four chiefs of the districts in the neighborhood of Dirakbir, who had been for some months in Constantinople, completed my party. In consequence of the severe and unjust treatment of the Yazidis, in compelling them to serve in the Turkish army, Hussein Bey and Sheikh Nasser, the chiefs of the whole community, hearing that I was at Constantinople, sent a deputation to the Sultan. Through Sir Stratford Canning's friendly interference, a firman was obtained, and they were freed from all illegal impositions for the future. Our arrangements were complete by the 28th of August, 1849, and on that day we left the Bosphorus by an English steamer bound for Trebizond. The size of my party, and its consequent encumbrances, rendering a caravan journey absolutely necessary, I determined to avoid the usual tracks, and to cross eastern Armenia and Kurdistan, both on account of the novelty of part of the country in a geographical point of view, and its political interest as having only recently been brought under the immediate control of the Turkish government. We disembarked at Trebizond on the 31st, and on the following day commenced our land journey. The country between this port and Ezrum has been frequently traversed and described. Through it passed the caravan routes connecting Persia with the Black Sea, the great lines of intercourse and commerce between Europe and Central Asia. The roads usually frequented are three in number. The summer, or upper road, is the shortest, but it is the most precipitous, and, crossing very lofty mountains, is closed after the snows commence. It is called Chakaler, from its fine upland pastures, on which the horses are usually fed when caravans take this route. The middle route has few advantages over the upper, and is rarely followed by merchants, who prefer the lower, although making a considerable detour by Gumish Kaneh, or the silver mines. The three unite at the town of Baibert, halfway between the sea and Ezerum. Although an active and daily increasing trade is carried on by these roads, no means whatever have until recently been taken to improve them. They consist of mere mountain tracks, deep in mud or dust, according to the season of the year. The bridges have been long permitted to fall into decay, and commerce is frequently stopped for days by the swollen torrent or for this stream. This has been one of the many evil results of the system of centralization so vigorously commenced by Sultan Mahmud, and so steadily carried out during the present reign. Since my visit to Trebizond, a road for carts has been commenced, which is to lead from that port to the Persian frontiers. But it will, probably, like other undertakings of the kind, be abandoned long before completed, or if ever completed, will be permitted at once to fall into ruin from the want of common repair. And yet the Persian trade is one of the chief resources of revenue of the Turkish Empire, and unless conveniences are afforded for its prosecution, will speedily pass into other hands. The southern shores of the Black Sea, twelve years ago rarely visited by a foreign vessel, are now coated by steamers belonging to three companies, which touch nearly weekly at the principal ports, and there is commerce and traffic enough for more. The want of proper harbors is a considerable drawback in the navigation of a sea so unstable and dangerous as the Ixin. Trebizond has a mere roadstead, and from its position is otherwise little calculated for a great commercial port, which, like many other places, it has become rather from its hereditary claims as a representative of a city once famous than from any local advantages. The only harbor on the southern coast is that of Batun, nor is there any retreat for vessels on the Circassian shores. This place is therefore probably destined to become the emporium of trade, both from its safe and spacious port, and from the facility it affords of internal communication with Persia, Georgia, and Armenia. At the back of Trebizond, 
as indeed along the whole of this singularly bold and beautiful coast, the mountains rise in lofty peaks, and are wooded with trees of enormous growth and admirable quality, furnishing an unlimited supply of timber for commerce or war. Innumerable streams force their way to the sea through deep and rocky ravines. The more sheltered spots are occupied by villages and hamlets, chiefly inhabited by a hardy and industrious race of Greeks. In spring the choicest flowers perfume the air, and luxuriant creepers clothe the limbs of gigantic trees. In summer the richest pastures enamel the uplands, and the inhabitants of the coast drive their flocks and herds to the higher regions of the hills. Our journey to Ezerum was performed without incident. A heavy and uninterrupted rain for two days tried the patience and temper of those who for the first time encountered the difficulties and incidents of eastern travel. The only place of any interest, passed during our ride, was a small Armenian village, the remains of a larger, with the ruins of three early Christian churches, or baptisteries. These remarkable buildings, of which many examples exist, belong to an order of architecture peculiar to the most eastern districts of Asia Minor and to the ruins of ancient Armenian cities, on the borders of Turkey and Persia. There are many interesting questions connected with this Armenian architecture which will deserve elucidation. From it was probably derived much that passed into the Gothic, whilst the Tartar conquerors of Asia Minor adopted it, as will be hereafter seen, for their mausoleums and places of worship. It is peculiarly elegant, both in its decorations, its proportions, and the general arrangement of the masses, and might with advantage be studied by the modern architect. Indeed, Asia Minor contains a mine of similar materials unexplored and almost unknown. We reached Ezerum on the 8th, and were most hospitably received by the British consul, Mr. Brandt, a gentleman who has long, well, and honorably sustained our influence in this part of Turkey, and who was the first to open an important field for our commerce in Asia Minor. With him I visited the commander-in-chief of the Turkish forces in Anatolia, who had recently returned from a successful expedition against the wild mountain tribes of central Armenia. Rashid Pasha, known as the Guzlu, or the wearer of spectacles, enjoyed the advantages of an European education, and had already distinguished himself in the military career. With the knowledge of the French language, he united a taste for European literature, which, during his numerous expeditions into districts unknown to Western travelers, had led him to examine their geographical features, and to make inquiries into the manners and religion of their inhabitants. His last exploit had been the subjugation of the tribes inhabiting the Dudjuk Mountains, to the southwest of Ezerum, long an open rebellion against the sultan. The account he gave me of the country and its occupants, though curious and interesting, is not perhaps to be strictly relied on, but a district hitherto inaccessible may possibly contain the remains of ancient races, monuments of antiquity, and natural productions of sufficient importance to merit the attention of the traveler in Asia Minor. The city of Ezerum is rapidly declining in importance, and is almost solely supported by the Persian transit trade, it would be nearly deserted if that traffic were to be thrown into a new channel by the construction of the direct road from Batun to the Persian frontiers. It contains no buildings of any interest, with the exception of a few ruins of monuments of early Muslim domination and the modern Turkish edifices, dignified with the names of palaces and barracks, are meeting the fate of neglected mud. The districts of Armenia and Kurdistan, through which lay our road from Ezrum to Mosul, are sufficiently unknown and interesting to merit more than a casual mention. Our route by the lake of Wan, Bitlis, and Jazira was nearly a direct one. 
it had been but recently opened to caravans. The haunts of the last of the Kurdish rebels were on the shores of this lake. After the fall of the most powerful of their chiefs, Bedr Khan Bey, they had one by one been subdued and carried away into captivity. Only a few months had, however, elapsed since the Beys of Bitlis, who had longest resisted the Turkish arms, been captured. With them, rebellion was extinguished for the time in Kurdistan. Our caravan consisted of my own party, with the addition of a muleteer and his two assistants, natives of Bitlis, who furnished me with seventeen horses and mules from Ezerum to Mosul. The first day's ride, as is customary in the east, where friends accompany the traveler far beyond the city gates, and where the preparations for a journey are so numerous that everything cannot well be remembered, scarcely exceeded nine miles. We rested for the night in the village of Guli, whose owner, one Shahan Bey, had been apprised of my intended visit. He had rendered his newly built house as comfortable as his means would permit for our accommodation, and, after providing us with an excellent supper, passed the evening with me. Descended from an ancient family of Dara Bays, he had inherited the hospitality and polished manners of a class now almost extinct, in consequence of the policy pursued by the Turkish sultans, Mahmud and Abdul Majid, to break down the great families and men of middle rank, who were more or less independent, and to consolidate and centralize the vast Ottoman Empire. It is customary to regard these old Turkish lords as inexorable tyrants, robber chiefs, who lived on the plunder of travelers and of their subjects. That there were many who answered to this description cannot be denied. But they were, I believe, exceptions. Amongst them were some rich in virtues and high and noble feeling. It has been frequently my lot to find a representative of this nearly extinct class in some remote and almost unknown spot in Asian Minor, or Albania. I have been received with affectionate warmth at the end of a day's journey by a vulnerable bey or aga in his spacious mansion, now fast crumbling to ruin, but still bright with the remains of rich, yet tasteful, oriental decoration. His long beard, white as snow, falling low on his breast, his many-folded turban shadowing his benevolent yet manly countenance, and his limbs enveloped in the noble garments rejected by the new generation. His hall open to all comers, the guest neither asked from whence he came or whither he was going, dipping his hands with him in the same dish, his servants standing with reverence before him, rather his children than his servants, his revenues spent by raising fountains on the wayside for the weary traveler, or in building caravansieries on the jury plain, not only professing, but practicing all the duties and virtues enjoined by the Quran, which are Christian duties and virtues too. In his manners, his appearance, his hospitality, and his faithfulness, a perfect model for a Christian gentleman. The race is fast passing away, and I feel grateful in being able to testify, with a few others, to its existence once, against prejudice, intolerance, and so-called reform. Our host at Guli, Shahan Bey, although not an old man, was a very favorable specimen of the class I have described. He was truly, in the noble and expressive phraseology of the East, an Oijak Zadeh, a child of the hearth, a gentleman born. His family had originally migrated from Dagestan, and his father, a pasha, had distinguished himself in the wars with Russia. He entertained me with animated accounts of feuds between his ancestors and the neighboring chiefs, and steadily refused to allow any recompense to himself or his servants for his hospitality. From Guli we crossed a high range of mountains, running nearly east and west, by a pass called Alibaba, or Alababa, 
enjoying from the summit an extensive view of the plain of Pasvin, one of the most thickly peopled and best cultivated districts in Armenia. The Christian inhabitants were partly induced by promises of land and protection, and partly compelled by force, to accompany the Russian army into Georgia after the end of the last war with Turkey. By similar means, that part of the Fasalik of Ezrum adjoining the Russian territories was almost stripped of its most industrious Armenian population. To the south of us rose the snow-capped mountains of the Bin Guil, or the Thousand Lakes, in which the Araxes and several confluences of the Euphrates have their source. We descended from the pass into undulating and barren downs. The villages, thinly scattered over the low hills, were deserted by their inhabitants, who, at this season of the year, pitch their tents and seek pasture for their flocks in the uplands. Next day we continued our journey amongst undulating hills, abounding in flocks of the great and lesser bustard. Innumerable sheep walks branched from the beaten path, a sign that villages were near. But, like those we had passed the day before, they had all been deserted for the Iliaks, or summer pastures. These villages are still such as when they were when Xenophon traversed Armenia. Their houses, says he, were underground, the mouth resembling that of a well, but spacious below. There was an entrance dug for the cattle, but the inhabitants descended by ladders. In these houses were goats, sheep, cows, and foals, with their young. The low hovels, mere holes in the hillside, and the common refuge of man, poultry, and cattle, cannot be seen from any distance, and they are purposely built away from the road, to escape the unwelcome visits of traveling government officers and marching troops. It is not uncommon for a traveler to receive the first intimation of his approach to a village by finding his horses four feet down a chimney, and himself taking his place unexpectedly in the family circle through the roof. Numerous small streams wind among the valleys, marking by meandering lines perpetual green their course to the Aras, or Araxes. We cross that river about midday by a ford not more than three feet deep, but the bed of the stream is wide, and after rains, and during the spring, is completely filled by an impassable torrent. During the afternoon we cross the western spur of the Tikab Mountains, a high and bold range with three well-defined peaks, which had been visible from the summit of the Alababa Pass. From the crest we had the first view of Subhan, or Sipan, Dach, a magnificent conical peak covered with eternal snow, and rising abruptly from the plain to the north of Lake Wan. It is a conspicuous and beautiful object from every part of the surrounding country. We descended into the wide and fertile plain of Hinnis. The town was just visible in the distance, but we left it to the right and halted for the night in the large Armenian village of Kosli, after a ride of more than nine hours. I was received at the guest house, a house reserved for travelers and supported by joint contributions, with great hospitality by one Misrab Aga, a Turk, to whom the village formerly belonged as a Svalik or military tenure, and who, deprived of his hereditary rights, had now farmed its revenues. He hurried with a long stick among the low houses, and heaps of dry dung, piled up in every open space for winter fuel, collecting fowls, curds, bread, and barley, abusing at the same time the tazimat, which compelled such exalted travelers as ourselves, he said, to pay for the provisions we condescended to accept. The inhabitants were not, however, backward in furnishing us with all we wanted, and the flourish of Misrab Aga's stick was only the remains of an old habit. I invited him to supper with me, an invitation he gladly accepted, 
having himself contributed a tender lamb roasted whole towards our entertainment. The inhabitants of Kosli could scarcely be distinguished either by their dress or by their general appearance from the Kurds. They seemed prosperous and were on the best terms with the Muslim farmer of their tithes. The village stands at the foot of the hills forming the southern boundary of the plains of Hinnis, through which flows a branch of the Muradsu, or lower Euphrates. We forded this river near the ruins of a bridge at Karakupri. The plain is generally well cultivated, the principal produce being corn and hemp. The villages, which are thickly scattered over it, have the appearance of extreme wretchedness, and, with their low houses and heaps of dry manure piled upon the roofs and in the open spaces around, look more like gigantic dung hills than human habitations. The Kurds and Armenian Christians, both hardy and industrious races, are pretty equally divided in numbers, and live sociably in the same filth and misery. We left the plains of Hinnis by a path through the mountain range of Zernak. On reaching the top of the pass, we had an interrupted view of the Subandach. From the village of Karagol, where we halted for the night, it rose abruptly before us. This magnificent peak, with the rugged mountains of Kurdistan, the river Euphrates winding through the plain, the peasants driving the oxen over the corn on the threshing floor, and the groups of Kurdish horsemen with their long spears and flowing garments, formed one of those scenes of eastern travel which can leave an indelible impression on the imagination, and bring back in after years indescribable feelings of pleasure and repose. We crossed the principal branch of the Euphrates soon after leaving Karagol. Although the river is fordable at this time of year, during the spring it is nearly a mile in breadth, overflowing its banks, and converting the entire plain into one great marsh. We now had to pick our way through a swamp, scaring, as we advanced, myriads of wild fowl. I have rarely seen game in such abundance, in such variety in one spot. The water swarmed with geese, duck, and teal, the marshy ground with herons and snipe, and the stubble with bustards and cranes. After the rains, the lower road is impassable, and caravans are obliged to make a considerable circuit along the foot of the hills. We were not sorry to escape the fever-breeding swamp in the mud of the plain, and to enter a line of low hills, separating us from the lake of Gula Sailu. I stopped for a few minutes at an Armenian monastery, situated on a small platform overlooking the plain. The bishop was at his breakfast, his fare frugal and episcopal enough, consisting of nothing more than boiled beans and sour milk. He insisted that I should partake of his repast, and I did so, in a small room scarcely large enough to admit the round tray containing the dishes, into which I dipped my hand with him and his chaplain. I found him profoundly ignorant, like the rest of his class, grumbling about taxes and abusing the Turkish government. After a pleasant drive of five hours, he reached a deep, clear lake, embedded in the mountains, Two or three pelicans, swan and shadow double, and myriads of waterfowl, lazily floating on its blue waters. Piron, the village where we halted for the night, stands at the further end of the Gula Shailu, and is inhabited by Kurds of the tribe of the Hassanalu, and by Armenians, all living in good fellowship amidst the dirt and wretchedness of their eternal dung heaps. Ophthalmia had made sad havoc amongst them and the doctor was soon surrounded by a crowd of the blind and diseased clamoring for relief. The villagers had said that a Persian, professing to be a Hakim, had passed through the place some time before, and had offered to cure all bad eyes on payment of a certain sum in advance. These terms being agreed to, 
he gave his patients a powder which left the sore eyes as they were and destroyed the good ones. He then went his way, and with the money in his pocket too, added a ferocious-looking curd, whose appearance certainly threw considerable doubt on the assertion. But what can one do in these days of the accursed Tanzimat reform? The lake of Shailu is separated from the larger lake of Nazik by a range of low hills about six miles in breadth. We reached the small village of Kares, built on its western extremity, in about two hours and a half, and found the chief, surrounded by the principal inhabitants, seated on a raised platform near a well-built stone house. He assured me, stroking a beard of spotless white to confirm his words, that he was above ninety years of age, and had never seen a European before the day of my visit. Half-blind, he peered at me through his blear eyes until he had fully satisfied his curiosity, then spoke contemptuously of the Franks, and abused the Tanzimat. The old gentleman, notwithstanding his rough exterior, was hospitable after a fashion. It would not suffer us to depart until we had eaten of every delicacy the village could afford. Leaving the Nazik Gul, we entered an undulating country traversed by very deep ravines, mere channels cut into the sandstone by mountain torrents. The villages are built at the bottom of these gullies, amidst fruit trees and gardens, sheltered by perpendicular rocks and watered by running streams. They are undiscovered until the traveler reaches the very edge of the precipice, when a pleasant and cheerful scene opens suddenly beneath his feet. He would have believed the upper country a mere desert had he not spied here and there in the distance a peasant slowly driving his plough through the rich soil. The inhabitants of this district are more industrious and ingenious than their neighbors. They carry the produce of their interests not on the backs of animals, as in most parts of Asia Minor, but in carts made entirely of wood, no iron used even in the wheels, which are ingeniously built of walnut, oak, and kara agash, literally, black tree thorn, the stronger woods being used for rough spokes let into the nave. The plough also differs from that in general use in Asia. To the share are attached two parallel boards, about four feet long and a foot broad, which separate the soil and leave a deep and well-defined furrow. We rode for two or three hours on these uplands, until, suddenly reaching the edge of a ravine, a beautiful prospect of a lake, woodland, and mountain opened before us. End of chapter one. Recording by Evan F.